Production made possible in part by Med Plus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. I'm your host, Dr. John Corker. Coming up on today's show, one of the world's leading physician experts on HIV-AIDS and now tapped as one of President Obama's key advisors on Ebola and other emerging infectious diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. An outbreak that's expanding exponentially mm-hmm. and you're only giving incremental linear increases, as everybody knows, exponential always wins. What Ebola is, it's, it's a classic example of what can happen when you have a major disparity in health resources. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. John Corker. Here at Radio Rounds, we continue to meet leaders in medicine who inspire us with how they began as young medical students and residents. Today, Radio Rounds' Imran Ali had the unique opportunity to interview Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Fauci was kind enough to take time out of his busy schedule amidst high-profile meetings with many stakeholders at a time when the Ebola crisis was beginning to unfold. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Robert Bazell now in Atlanta. AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, sounds less than deadly, more like a diet pill. AIDS has struck only a reported 1,500 people, but it has killed almost 600 of them. And as yet, no one with AIDS has been cured. Puzzling new disease has appeared in the past couple of years that is spreading rapidly among homosexuals, and it is a disease that is fatal. In the early 1980s, a new disease was emerging which people had few answers for. But one new researcher at the NIH, Dr. Anthony Fauci, was inspired to dig deeper and now has become an international expert on HIV AIDS and a variety of emerging diseases. We think of the National Institutes of Health as also the National Institutes of Hope. And I think hope just went up a notch today by the fact that we are all here uh, to celebrate the recovery of a patient who clearly was afflicted by a disease that is very serious and yet under the careful care of this remarkable staff is now here before you. And I'd like to call on Dr. Tony Fauci uh, to come and tell you more about why we're all here. Dr. Fauci. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, As you uh, are probably anticipating, I have some very good and happy news to impart on you right now. Our patient, Nina Pham, is free of Ebola. As we now face new dangers with an unprecedented outbreak of the Ebola virus, the world depends on physicians such as Dr. Anthony Fauci, who joins us here today on Radio Rounds. Dr. Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, otherwise known as the NIAID, at the National Institutes of Health, Since his appointment as NIAID director in 1984, Dr. Fauci has overseen an extensive research portfolio devoted to preventing, diagnosing, and treating infectious and immune-mediated diseases. Dr. Fauci serves as one of the key advisors to the White House and Department of Health and Human Services on global AIDS issues, 
and on initiatives to bolster medical and public health preparedness against emerging infectious disease threats. Dr. Fauci has been awarded 38 honorary doctoral degrees and is the author, co-author, or editor of more than 1,200 scientific publications, including several major textbooks, including the one me and my fellow colleagues use the most, Harrison's Textbook of Internal Medicine. We are very proud to have Dr. Fauci joining us today here on Radio Rounds. Dr. Fauci, we would like to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to talk with us here at Radio Rounds. Your work in the field of HIV and infectious diseases has definitely inspired me as well as countless other young physicians and medical students. You originally started working on inflammatory diseases way back in the early 1980s. What was the seminal moment during the summer of 1981 that made you decide to change your focus to this emerging new disease called HIV? Well, it actually started with something uh, very simple. I was sitting in my office uh, at the NIH Clinical Center uh, when I read the June 5th MMWR describing the first five patients from Los Angeles with mm -hmm. pneumocystis pneumonia. I thought it was a fluke. I had no idea what it was, and I just put it aside. Mm. And then exactly one month later on the 4th of July, another MMWR on um, July 4th of 1981 described the additional 26 patients with this strange disease, curiously all gay men mm -hmm. with not only pneumocystis but with Kaposi sarcoma and, up and other opportunistic infections. Right. And that was really a transforming moment for me because I, I intuitively felt and believe that this had to be a new disease, that this just couldn't happen spontaneously. I was not sure what it was, but I made a decision then, which at the time seemed a little bit far out by my colleagues and mentors. I decided that despite the fact that I was engaged in a rather successful young career, mm -hmm. uh, as you said, studying uh, inflammatory and other diseases and host defense mechanisms that I would begin to essentially devote all my time mm -hmm. to this new disease. And it wasn't even called HIV then. It was called GRID or gay-related immunodeficiency. Oh, wow. And it was at that point that I made that decision. When I reflect back, I still am not fully appreciative of why I made it. I just felt it was the thing to do, that this was going to truly explode. And unfortunately... Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened. So it was really that gut reaction mm -hmm. to the reports in the MMWR that really uh, inspired and triggered me to just totally change the focus of my career. Mm. What do you think uh, we residents or our young researchers in the field of medicine should look for today? What is uncharted territory today that was similar to what you saw in the 1980s? Well, you know, it's it's... It's interesting that the very nature of the question you're asking doesn't have an answer. Because, <laughs> and, and the reason I say that mm -hmm. is that HIV was completely a surprise, right. completely unappreciated how bad it was going to be, sure. um, and is an infectious disease. Now, infectious diseases that are emerging infectious diseases have the characteristic of potentially being explosive, right. unpredictable, and really not knowing where they're going. I think living through the Ebola 
mm-hmm. outbreak in West Africa right now is another example of Most something definitely. that wasn't even on people's radar screens right. that is now, from a public health standpoint, a potential real catastrophe. But exactly. that doesn't mean that every new challenging thing for medical students and residents needs to be an explosive emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. There are things that can be just as exciting and that could provide openings and challenges in many disciplines that don't necessarily have the drama mm-hmm. of, a, of a potential pandemic like right. HIV or a regional epidemic like Ebola. And those are some of the more subtle scientific things like, mm-hmm. you know, the whole uh, if you're interested in infectious disease, the, the whole uh, relationship between the human microbiome mm-hmm. and a variety of different diseases, I mean, to me is totally fascinating. If I were a medical mm-hmm. student or a resident now with even the slightest peripheral interest in infectious diseases, I would think mm-hmm. that exploring the potential of understanding the microbiome mm. would be very important. I mean, if I was interested in neurology, the whole uh, initiative of mapping the circuitry of the yes. brain yes. seems like it's extraordinarily exciting. exciting. So there, there are many areas that I think for a medical student or a resident are truly uncharted, not mm-hmm. in the sense of an outbreak necessarily, but right. you know, you don't have to be an outbreak to have <laughs> to be exciting uh, medicine and, and, and research. That's true. Yeah, uh, medicine has so many tracks, ranging from the day-to-day care of patients to research and now policy. How did you decide what kind of track you would take? Were you going to just see patients in an internal medicine practice or go into research? How did you decide which track to take? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm smiling a little when I'm getting ready to give you the answer because, you know, I didn't really make any single abrupt decision. It uh-huh. was a series of events, some beyond my control, I see. which led me into different channels. So, you know, it wasn't a decision of one track versus the other. I liked all of them. So I did, to a greater or lesser degree, multiple tracks, clinical medicine, clinical mm-hmm. care, research, policy, administration. Um, I realized that, that, however, that you can't do all of these full-time. That's right. impossible. Exactly. So I had to give up certain aspects of each of these in order to be able to do some of all of them. So mm-hmm. if you look at my career, it's still steeped in clinical medicine. I still see mm-hmm. patients. Oh, good. Uh, I run a laboratory. Mm-hmm. I'm very heavily involved in policy, right. uh, the, directing an, a large institute as well as getting involved in issues such as developing the PEPFAR program and others. So you can do many things, but you have to realize that you may have to give up some aspects. So do you still train young physicians who come to the NIH for training? Oh, oh, very much so. And we do that not only on rounds, but also Mm -hmm. with an official training program. Now, your work in HIV-AIDS goes well beyond the science. Uh, We talked about how you got involved in public policy as well. Uh, You also got engaged with the gay community, most notably uh, Mr. Larry Kramer. How did you get thrust into the spotlight with the protests in the 1980s? Well, I got thrust into the spotlight uh, almost uh, accidentally as a sidebar of what I was doing. As Mm -hmm. I mentioned to you just a a few minutes ago, I made a decision very early on, literally in 1981, I was going to do everything I could to investigate this this emerging 
uh, you know, it started off as an outbreak and now mm-hmm. it's a pandemic that has involved more than 70 million people. But during those early years, I was very, I was not in a crowd because there were very few of us who were doing AIDS research. So as a government person who was also doing research, I was out there trying to find out what was going on. And yes. I was visible. I was in the newspapers. I was on television. Sure. Uh, I, I was doing things that were trying to shake the cages to get the government more involved with resources and with also paying more attention. And because I was visible, uh, I attracted the attention of the activists who associated me with the government. So even though I was was pushing for things that they were very in favor of, nonetheless, I was associated with the government. So I stuck my neck out, Mm -hmm. and by being Mm -hmm. visible, um, I also became a target. Right. Uh, and for years, I was a target of the activists as being, you know, the evil federal government. But then <laughs> when it became clear to them that I was actually pushing for the things that were important for them, right. then I became very much an ally of the activists and the activists became an ally of me. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Larry Kramer. He was my great nemesis back in the <laughs> mid to late 80s. Of he was writing articles about the fact that I was a murderer, that I was yes. an incompetent idiot and things right. like that. And now today, Larry Kramer is one of my closest friends. He's been a patient of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've you know, I've had dinner at his house. He's had dinner at my house. We've been Amazing. close personal friends for now well over 20 years. So it started wow. off as an adversarial relationship has now become a very warm friendship. Wow. Fascinating. I know that where I'm doing my residency here in Connecticut, uh, we have HIV clinic every Tuesday morning. And I was a medical student and I did my rotations at Brooklyn Hospital. I saw a lot of new infections, HIV infections. Uh, is this still a, I mean, HIV is definitely ravaging third world countries, but is it still something that we should be concerned about here in the United States or is it primarily still a tropical disease? Well, the answer is yes to both of your questions. First of all, uh, it is very much a disease of low and middle income countries. 90 plus percent of the cases are in the developing world and 67% are in Southern Africa, Mm Sub-Saharan Africa. However, don't for a moment think that it's not a problem here in the United States. So Mm -hmm. there are 1.1 million people infected Mm -hmm. with HIV in the United States. There's close to 700,000 deaths since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And even today, with all of our interventions that we have available, there are 50,000 new infections each year Unfortunately, with a great disparity towards infections in African-Americans, particularly African-American gay men, Mm -hmm. 12% of the population in the United States is African-American, yet close to 50% of all of the new infections are among African-Americans. So that's, that's yeah, 50%. Yeah, that's really not good. So we have a problem here in the United States, and we have a major problem globally. So this is something that is still very much something that we need to tackle. You had the honor of getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bush in 2008. And President Bush had put a lot of resources, along with the Clinton Foundation, uh, toward fighting HIV in Africa. How are we doing now in that region? Well, uh, first of all, the the PEPFAR program that, that we established and that President Bush gave me the Presidential Medal of Freedom for mm-hmm. being the architect of, mm-hmm. I think together with the Global Fund and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation have really transformed 
the entire epidemic and pandemic in Africa uh, right. to the point when I first was sent there by the president to scope out whether we could do a PEPFAR program. There were only about 50,000 mm. people to, all together on therapy in low and middle income countries. And that was mostly from donations from foundations, but not really enough for the whole scope. Now there are close to 12 million or more people uh, who are receiving antiretroviral therapy. So this has been one of the most important uh, initiatives on a global health scale mm -hmm. that the United States or any nation has ever been involved in. So that's the good news. The, mm -hmm. the sobering news is that with the resource restrictions that we have right now, mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to lose momentum. We have the capability if we push with testing and treatment, treatment as prevention, prevention modalities that range from prevention of mother-to-child transmission to sure. pre-exposure prophylaxis to treatment as prevention, we can actually turn around this global pandemic and ultimately, as we say, see, you know, within a time frame that's not unreasonable, a world without pandemic AIDS. I don't wow. think we're going to get I'm rid sorry. of AIDS completely, but we <laughs> right. certainly can get it off the pandemic scope. Sure. The only trouble is with the restriction on resources, we might lose momentum. So we've mm -hmm. got to continue to put resources, not only the United States, but the rest of the world, right. in accelerating the momentum we already have. Sure. 50,000 to 12 million. Wow. That, that is really impressive. I, I mean, we've come a long way. Now, I, just, I was talking to my attending physician about this. We had this little um, HIV conference about this question. What role, if any, does the pre-exposure prophylaxis therapy, such as Truvada, play? Um, the HPTN uh, studies showed great promise in serodiscordant couples. Uh, but will this lead to a false sense of security? Also, some of the studies I've seen, people were not adherent to taking the medication right. every, every time. Uh, what would we do to make people more adherent to the medication? And, and still, even if we make people adherent, I mean, would people get a false sense of security saying that, oh, well, they're taking this medication, they don't have to take any other measures for prevention? Well, you asked some very good questions that are really, you know, complex. And mm -hmm. first of all, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, with the approved drug for PrEP, Travada, mm -hmm. which is, you know, is two drugs in one pill, right. uh, uh, tenofovir and antricytobine, um, is not meant to be a prevention modality in a vacuum. Okay. It's meant to be part of a combination prevention. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to substitute it. You want to complement what you're doing. Now, one of the issues that's really important is that some people, no matter what you do, are not going to use condoms, no matter what. Sure. Um, and so PrEP is a very good uh, substitute for that if someone is not going to use a condom. Also, mm -hmm. in discordant couples, where one of the couples that's infected does not want to be treated, the uninfected one right. can decrease the risk greatly. So sure. one of the things we know is that PrEP, if you take the pill every day, it absolutely works. It works greater than 90 plus percent. Yeah, I the real the critical thing is the adherence, that yes. people don't take it. So what we've got to do, we know it works. Mm -hmm. We don't need to prove anymore that it works. We right. know it works when you take it. We've got to figure out ways to make adherence better. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a number of ways to doing that. Obviously, education and counseling and things like that can work, but one of the sure. things that we're working on is a long-acting antiretroviral where I someone see. doesn't have to take it every single day. Mm -hmm. And there are some experimental approaches now 
towards taking a pill or an injection that would last for a very long period of time so that you don't have to take a pill every single day. But but the message is that PrEP does work when you use it. Okay, so we can clearly see that emerging diseases are becoming more prevalent, as you said so eloquently on Stephen Colbert's show, Nature's Terrorist. Uh, Where do we stand on the Ebola outbreak, and why is it so bad now? Well, we, we stand with the Ebola outbreak that we are in a very tenuous situation because mm-hmm. it is growing exponentially and the, and the resources and, and interventions that we are applying given the healthcare structure there is incremental. So when you have an outbreak that's expanding exponentially mm-hmm. and you're only giving incremental linear increases, as everybody knows, exponential always wins. Right, so right. we've really got to markedly escalate our infection control with massive infusion of resources, hospital beds, trained That's healthcare thing, yeah. providers, infection control capabilities, personal protective equipment, etc. Right. But as I said in a recent article I wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine, mm-hmm. um, what Ebola is, it's, it's a classic example of what can happen when you have a major disparity in health resources. Very Let me true. explain what I mean. The infrastructure there is just not suited to containing an outbreak like Ebola, which is spread mm-hmm. from person to person by coming into contact with the bodily fluids of people who are sick or people who have already died. Right. I wouldn't be surprised that given the way things are going in West Africa, one of these days somebody's going to get on a plane who is infected but without symptoms mm-hmm. and come from West Africa and land somewhere, Washington, New York, Paris, wow. London, and get infected in West Africa, get sick over here, mm-hmm. and maybe even come into an emergency room and infect a nurse or a wow. doctor. But there won't be a major outbreak. Mm-hmm. And the reason there won't be a major outbreak is that we have a healthcare system that has the capability mm-hmm. of doing identification, isolation, contact sure. tracing. So the reason the outbreak is getting out of control is that the disparity of healthcare resources in the West African countries mm-hmm. is the perfect storm for the expansion of this outbreak. No, it's so true. I mean, this morning I saw reports of people making seven-hour journey to get to a hospital only to die outside the hospital doors because the hospitals are closed because they are afraid of taking in any Ebola patients. They don't have personal protective equipment. And, you know, they just need 700 beds alone uh, in in Monrovia just to deal with the people who are coming in. Um, I've spoken to Lori Garrett. Uh, the Council of Formulations, who was a key advisor on Warner Brothers' movie Contagion. How realistic is that scenario? You described, you know, a patient coming in to Washington on a flight. But like you said, we have a better robust system, so we would not get to that point where we received that, that film. Well, the film is obviously a bit melodramatic, the way sure. films should be. <laughs> so it's part realistic and part not. Uh, You know, nothing is impossible, but you have to be careful that you don't want to frighten people. Uh, That's not not productive. As I often say, when people say, do you, you know, should the American public be losing sleep over Ebola? (laughs) And my response is, 
No, it's my job to lose sleep over Ebola, <laughs> not the not the general public. So, sure, sure the movie Contagion was frightening. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that something like that can happen? Sure. Is it likely? No, it's not likely, but you always need to be prepared. Sure. So I never poo-poo that, mm -hmm. and I never take it lightly, but I very much have a negative reaction to scare tactics where people <laughs> get really frightened. Sure. Speaking of the Ebola, of, um, the Ebola vaccine is something that's something that's emerging now. In September, we started the trials. You started the trials, I think, they're right. being done in Oxford, England, and also in the United States. H how are they going so far? Well, the one that we started right here in Bethesda, Maryland, at our clinical center, mm. we started it on September the 2nd, which was the first trial that was started in the human in phase one. The total number of people that are going to be injected with the vaccine in this phase one trial will be 20. Okay. We're almost there. We have about 16 or 17 that have already been injected. Wow. We've gone from the low dose to the high dose. We'll know by the end of November mm -hmm. the safety profile and the immunogenicity. And as in all vaccine Wonderful. trials, you have to start off with safety being paramount and the first thing you, you, you're concerned about. So that's the reason why you start slowly and you start off with a small number of people. If sure. the safety profile looks good mm -hmm. at the end of this calendar year, then we'll go into expanded phase 2A and phase 2B trials. Excellent. Wow. Sounds very exciting. Yeah. Dr. Fauci, one last question before I let you go. Um, what advice would you give young physicians out there on getting into research, getting into clinical research, or more so, you know, bench research? A lot of the research that we are offered here, or we do here at the hospital, is mostly clinical research, chart review. I mean, I know it's exciting, but it, it can be sometimes a little bit boring. You want to really get into uh, the, the molecular science of, of things. So I find that also that a lot of my friends are very excited about that. But how, how does one get into it? I mean, where does one start? Well, you start off if, if you, you know, if, if you're a young physician and you, and I always recommend completing your clinical training because I think if you're going through medical school, mm -hmm. you might as well be fully trained as, as a physician, sure. which just from, from my own personal standpoint, that was a very important part of the evolution of my own identity, not only as a physician, but as a scientist. Sure. You get into research by doing a fellowship and you mm -hmm. get into a good lab with a good mentor mm -hmm. and A, see if you like it because that's the most important thing. If you don't like something and just right. do it because you think it's the thing to do, <laughs> you're going to get unhappy pretty quickly of course. Um, and see if you're any good at it. I mean, are you good enough at it that, you, that, that it gives you gratification? Mm -hmm. um, and then if you want to get in policy, there are so many different ways of getting into policy. I think one of the things that physicians are concerned about mm. is that if they go into research and policy, they may, you know, lose what they've trained themselves for, sure, namely to be, sure. a, you know, lose sight of what it is to take care of an individual patient. Exactly. I think that you can take off a year or even a few years mm -hmm. to see if you like research and see if you like policy and not really lose your connection to the patient. I can remember so clearly mm -hmm. when I was doing an infectious disease fellowship down here, the first year was a clinical year, sure. and the last two years were years at the bench. Mm -hmm. And I developed tremendous anxiety reaction that I was going to forget everything that I learned <laughs> as, a, as a resident because I right. was going back to New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center sure. as, chief, as chief resident. Oh boy! So I was saying, oh, my God, I'm going to go back to be chief resident after two years in the lab 
and I'm going to just completely forget everything. Well, it took me about three days to get it all back once oh, you get wow. back Only on the ward. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you, you really, you don't forget things. I mean, That's there good. are That's new medications and things. So I think if people want to take the step, you know, put their foot in the water mm-hmm. and see how it feels in research and policy, give it a shot. You're not sure. going to lose anything. That's true. If you like it and you're reasonably good at it, go for it. If you don't, then, you know, clinical medicine is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, if I had to stop everything right now and just concentrate on clinical medicine, I'd be a happy person. Awesome. Great. Dr. Fauci, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us here in Radio Rounds to provide us with some really good insight on the exciting things that are happening right now. And we hope to maybe follow up with you after the Ebola trials are completed, uh, maybe to see how they, how they went. Sounds good. My thank pleasure. Thank you so much. Truly amazing how Dr. Fauci explains how far we have gone since the early days of HIV-AIDS and on now into the Ebola crisis and how we continue to deal with it and learn from both our successes and our mistakes. Thanks, Imran, for that great interview. Stay tuned as we find out more on the Ebola vaccine trials, which are to get underway in December, and look forward to a quick update from Imran. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at studentdoctor.net. Find answers to your questions about medical school or residency programs. Ask questions in our online forums and get answers quickly. It's fast, easy, and available now at studentdoctor.net. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a fantastic week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, I'll be your doctor. <laughs>